podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going In Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, Tuesday. A couple things going on today. But for our purposes, the big event of the week will be the Breeders' Cup. There's something else going on today, but there's enough talk about that. So we will focus our energies on horse racing, where there's plenty of politics. But we won't be talking about politics today. Today, originally, the Breeders' Cup was meant to move around all over the country to kind of showcase the best horses uh, is a championship event. And a little bit, I don't want to, I'm not complaining, I'm just saying that things evolve, and it's gotten to be, seems to be a rotation of, of mostly Central Kentucky and Southern California, and those are great places to host the event, but uh, there's a lot of other places that have hosted it, and for people that are new in racing and or, or just uh, of, of a little younger age, we talk about the second Breeders' Cup. This is the 35th anniversary of that second Breeders' Cup, 1885. The Breeders' Cup was held at Aqueduct. And it might seem bizarre under the, uh, the current circumstances uh, that uh, Aqueduct would, would hold a Breeders' Cup race, but... It held seven of them, and this was back pre-expansion when there was just seven Breeders' Cup races. There was the Classic, there was the Distaff, there was the Sprint, the Turf Mile, which was just a mile, the Turf, and the two races for two-year-olds, the Juvenile Phillies and the Juvenile. And uh, it was uh, it was a, a, a the the first, the first Breeders' Cup in 1984 at Hollywood Park was a huge success, and the next year we ran it on the East Coast, and Aqueduct was the track that was running in November, and they got the call. There was actually 46,000 people at Aqueduct that day. Probably hasn't been 46,000 different people at Aqueduct, <laughs> maybe since then. Or maybe I'm being a little, a little, a little hard on Aqueduct, but... Uh, that's something that's never going to happen again because Aqueduct has more or less been transformed into a casino with a smaller, much smaller section of the grandstand slash clubhouse still existing for racing. But, yep, the Aqueduct Breeders' Cup was was actually a pretty solid day of racing. There were some great horses that raced that day. The classic which capped off the day, was, was actually an upsetter. And it was a very, very strong field. And uh, all the same, Proud Truth won that, that race. And uh, we have Proud Truth trainer going to come on and join us today, John Veach. John is a, uh, a steward now, has been for many, many years. And uh, John, of course, trained the great Ali Dar, who was probably one of the most uh, uh, hard luck horses to ever to ever race 
in that he was born the same year as affirmed was, and had he not been, he might have been uh, he might have been the triple crown winning trainer John Beach, and uh, instead of the triple crown thrice winning running second trainer. Um, but John trained some some other really really good horses and. Darby, Dan, and Galbraith family for years, and uh, and we'll have John on, and, and uh, there's a really, really interesting story about how Proud Truth got to that classic, and that he was a highly, highly rated uh, three-year-old on the Triple Crown Trail, and was injured, and the um, the classic became the, the fall goal, and uh, and John's going to uh, relay that story of, of, of how he got there, and it's... Uh, Something you wouldn't see these days. It just wouldn't happen the way it happened. But uh, but we'll have him on first. And following John, we're going to have Hall of Fame jockey uh, George Velasquez. No relation to John. Uh, George won on Proud Truth that day. He also won the Juvenile Phillies race uh, earlier on the card with Twilight Ridge for... Wayne Lucas, that was where George's first and first two and only Breeders' Cup mounts, and he uh, his career started in the late '60s. So by the time the Breeders' Cup came around, uh, he was kind of uh, at, at the tail end of his career. But he he was a great rider. He he was elected to the Hall of Fame in uh, 1990, and uh, has uh, a huge huge record of of big wins, great horses that he rode, and uh, we're going to have have George on and talk about that Breeders' Cup in particular. He also ran second on a on a filly, pretty pretty well known filly in the in the distaff, and we'll we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about that with with him. And the '85 Breeders' Cup was was really a an extremely um, it was an extremely salty group of horses, just uh, so many great horses. And a lot of them, of course, that was 35 years ago, and you don't even see them in pedigrees anymore. But um, the Juvenile was won that year by a horse named Casso, who was named uh, two-year-old champion. Um, but the lasting legacy from the 1985 Juvenile came from the runner-up, a horse named Stormcat, who at the time was, uh, was trained by Jonathan Shepard who wound up being one of the premier stallions of the uh, 20th century into the 21st century and, and whose market is still being sold today. Uh, Stormcat ran second to Tasso. He, uh, they ran a, a, a good race, but um, a horse named Groovy was also in that, that uh, juvenile, and he stumbled at the start and set a wicked pace, which was <laughs> kind of his... Uh, modus operandum, especially in, in races that weren't sprints. Truvy was a really extremely fast sprinter, and uh, he, they tried for a while. They tried to make him stretch out, and he just didn't want to do it, and then Jose Martin wound up being his trainer. He had quite a few trainers before Jose got him, and Jose turned him into a uh, champion sprinter. So he, he was a horse that never won if he didn't have the lead. If he got the lead from him, he, he generally... He, he wasn't a, a big, big on passing horses, but Ruby was a was a really, really top sprinter, and he also ran on on that card uh, in that, uh, November of 1985. 
hard, hard to believe it. Hard to believe it was 35 years ago, but um, it's hard to believe that there was an uh, Aqueduct had a had a Breeders' Cup race uh, or, or car day of races, and uh, you know you you look now where the Breeders' Cup is spread over two days. You have so many more races for two-year-olds. You have so many more races for fillies, and uh, it certainly has expanded and, and become a, a bigger event. At the time, it was still kind of a new thing. Uh, there was quite a few horses that had to be supplemented because um, it hadn't caught on and, and horses had to be nominated as foals. So um, it wasn't something that a lot of breeders normally did. Obviously, most of the big breeders in Kentucky did, but uh, but it was a great concept that uh, Mr. Gaines came up with. And it's uh, I'm not going to say that it, everything that, that's happened because of the Breeders' Cup is good. There, there's been some negatives to it. There, there certainly has been a focus on the Breeders' Cup, almost a hyper-focus for some horses. When you look at this year's card, and there's a lot of horses. I was looking at the, the Classic last night, and I understand we are in the COVID era, right? And we had a, a section of, of time blocked out uh, between March, April, May, that we weren't really sure what was going on. We weren't really sure what was going to be running. We weren't really sure where what the schedule was going to be like. Everybody was kind of on a on hold of sorts, and as such, that affected uh, schedules for sure and timing and, and, and prep for races. And But, man, there's so many horses that are contenders in this Breeders' Cup that have three races this year, four races this year. And... Uh, and, and that uh, partly is, is because the, the Breeders' Cup has become this, um, uh, it's, like, it's like the, it's overshadowed most of the, the old traditional fall stakes, and people are, are taking shots in the Breeders' Cup knowing that if they have credentials going in, if they won a couple of other big races and they win the Breeders' Cup, that they'll they'll most likely get a, a championship, uh, an Eclipse Award, which, uh, of course, is, is important to, to people with horses of that caliber. It's taken away, though. There's definitely taken away from some of the competitiveness, and, and I don't want to get into all the semantics about super trainers and, uh, you know, there's three guys that have uh, 37 or 38 or 40 horses between them entered in these 14 races, but... It, it definitely has, has changed uh, in the way business is conducted in the fall in New York. The, the fall championship meet was the Breeders' Cup before the Breeders' Cup. And, and clearly that, uh, from, based upon not just this year, but the last decade's worth of, of, uh, of prep races that didn't used to be prep races. The Jockey Club Gold Cup was nobody's prep race for most of its existence. And now it's a prep race. And this year's this year's version was was uh, ghastly when, when viewed in a historical fashion. Uh, we were only getting the third place finish in this race. Uh, Tactics or whatever the hell his name is is uh, post one in the classic, and I'm sure we'll clunk along and be fifth. But um, the way things are conducted in racing have changed, and and uh, the Breeders' Cup. 
is a huge event. It's a great event. There's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars handled on it. I think um, I read uh, the Breeders' Cup at Aqueduct. Now, remember, seven races and a, a limited, there was no ADWs. It was a, a limited off-track network. Uh, handled uh, $28 million, 28 plus. They'll do $28 million on the, the Classic this year alone. So certainly things are, are, are different. And uh, But I, I like looking back, and I, and I think that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people uh, that either weren't aware of, of some of the feats of some of these horses or um, kind of reminisce about... Uh, about those days and, and uh, the good old days as, as we had. <laughs> I was talking to a friend, and uh, he's a, a former ex-trainer as well, and about my my age group, and he was he said, wasn't Aqueduct, that wasn't a great Breeders' Cup, was it? I said, you know, it really was a great Breeders' Cup. You had Pebbles winning, you had Cozine winning the, the mile, and uh, Proud Truth upset a really strong field in the Classic, and um, the juvenile races were probably um, not uh, were probably more famous for horses that went on and did other things, but they, they were they were big fields and solid races. And that was won by a silly named Life's Magic, who uh, who was a great horse, a Hall of Fame caliber horse. Um, so the sprint was won by uh, Precisionist, cutting back over Smile. So it was a really solid group of horses. I said, you know what, it's just Aqueduct is so gray, and it was. It was a 50-degree day, and Aqueduct has always got a wind blowing, so it always seems a little colder over there, and it's just kind of a gray track. It's like there's no color there. And, uh, uh, you know, most of the year you're you're used to thinking of Aqueduct in in January and December and February where... Snow on the infield, and 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 that, at that day it was it was not a, it was not a I, I distinctly remember it was not a uh, a bright sunny day, but it wasn't a bad day. And uh, looking back, it's uh, it's interesting to to think about uh, some some things that um, how you know things have expanded. I was looking over the cards that were drawn yesterday, and. Uh, and thinking about how you know you see these full field overflow fields of horses, and, and uh, the Breeders' Cup is, is definitely it's a, it's a worldwide event, and it's really different. It's taken uh, it's taken on a, a, a completely different uh, approach to, than it was back then, when it was just kind of the finishing touches. And Proud Truth won no no uh, no awards, and uh, it was a, a race that. Uh, that uh, has has kind of persevered and uh, and I do like to talk about it and uh, you know that that was uh, you, when you think back about uh, about the Breeders' Cup and 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 how it is now and how it is then and uh, it's just different. Uh, we have John, John, welcome to the program, John Veach. John, how are you? I'm very well, Chuck. Thank you for calling. Uh, this is the pleasure to have you on, uh, Mr. Veach, sir. We, we've, uh, of course, admired your work as a trainer for for years. I'm not trying to age you, but uh, when, when I was when I was a kid, uh, one of the first, um, you know, great rivalries that I, I was I followed, you know, growing up in Saratoga was uh, 
affirmed in Aladar, and you you kind of took it on the chin with that. But uh, you always had good horses in the right spots, and and you know you ran a a quality barn, like a horse that you were sending out was one that all, people always respected, and and for the most part they always ran well. So I I, I do appreciate you coming on to talk about uh, about Proud Truth and 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 some of your other great horses as well. Well, thanks for inviting me, Chuck. I, you know, I had a great career. I had uh, not only some wonderful uh, horses to work with, but also some wonderful owners, and certainly the Galbraith family and uh, the Calumet family, uh, as my father did uh, in his career with uh, C.B. Whitney and, and George D. Widener. So I was very fortunate and, and privileged uh, to, uh, to be associated with those types of people. John, you know, the, the 1985 Breeders' Cup, it, it's funny that... When you think about the old Breeders' Cups, people, they, they always think about the first year where they had to finish with Wild again and slew a gold and the, the disqualification and uh, the, the, the the great matchup of uh, Derby winners and uh, the 87 uh, Classic with uh, Ferdinand and Ali Sheba kind of hitting the wire together, which was one of the all-time great races. And he had Easy Goer and Sunday Silence in 89. And sometimes... 85 gets overlooked, and, and I was just talking to the, the audience about how how solid of a card it was. And, and back then, we only ran seven races, but there were so many really good horses that ran on that card that day, and it just gets kind of overlooked, I think, because you were surrounded and by the, the California, sun, you know, the sunny, uh, uh, you know, Breeders' Cups. And, and uh, but I, I think uh, people it's kind of been forgotten that proud truth you know his story was really interesting how he got to the breeders cup classic and um and i've just previewed it a little bit about you know how he had gotten injured and taken some time off can can you just go over his career like how you know from where he started out and and how, you know getting on the derby trail and and then go from there well you know the, the interesting thing about proud truth was that, that as a 2 year old he was very, very difficult to manage, and uh, they had kept him at, at the farm in Ohio where uh, Mr. Galbraith broke all of his horses, all of his yearlings, and uh, he got very powerful and very big and very strong, and they just didn't have anybody at the farm that could ride him well enough, and when he came to me at, in Saratoga of August of his two-year-old year, he was almost unmanageable, and I had a great assistant trainer uh, who was also my traveling foreman and, and a great, great rider. And Charlie Rose, and, and Charlie took him to the racetrack for the first time and got thrown three times going around. And he just persevered with Proud Tooth and made him into the racehorse that he was. And uh, I believe that he uh, ran twice as a two-year-old and won both of them. And we had great expectations for him, uh, you know, as a three-year-old. And, uh, you know, I mean, his his performance in the early part of his three-year-old year was good. Uh, he kind of, uh, I think he was second in the wood, and uh, ran fifth in the Derby and had an, an ex- exceptionally bad trip. But uh, he came out of the Derby in good shape. But I decided at the time that the Preakness was not the the road to follow, and selected the Peter Pan, which in those days was a Grade One stake at Belmont Park. I mean at uh, at Aqueduct. No, it was at Belmont. Belmont yeah. And I thought that that would benefit him uh, from the standpoint of getting a race over the racetrack. And also, it was close enough in, in the time schedule that I wanted for the Belmont. 
He came out, he won the Peter Pan very handily, came out of the race in, in looking great shape. Three days later, we took him back to the racetrack, and he was uncomfortable. Uh, not lame, but uncomfortable. And Charlie, who was riding him, told me, he said, you know, it, it, he just he's just not moving as he should. Well, we checked him over, and we found out he had in his left front leg what they call in those days a saucer fracture, which is a, a minuscule round fracture in the cannon bone uh, that is very difficult to heal and very slow to heal. And I had a wonderful veterinarian, or actually two, uh, Dr. Reed and Dr. Chuck Allen, and they suggested that we do a little surgery on him uh, and actually drill a few holes in that saucer fracture so that it would stimulate the healing. And so from two weeks before the Belmont until the first day of September, he was laid up. And... Um, he was an exceptionally tough horse to train. I mean, he could take a lot of training and, and really needed as many good horses need a lot of training uh, to be at their best. And I trained him twice a day from the first day of September uh, all the way up to the breeders, all, all the way up to actually to his uh, allowance race going seven eighths of a mile. Uh, and uh, he responded well. And I sat down one afternoon with uh, with Charlie and, and my other assistant trainer. And we mapped out a schedule for him, day by day, week by week, month by month, leading up to his first race, and then the Discovery Handicap, and then, of course, to the uh, uh, to the Breeders' Cup. And we couldn't afford to miss a day. And the horse responded, and it was magnificent. And the Discovery was the week before the Breeders' Cup? Uh, yes. It was actually, six, uh, I think it was on a Sunday, and the Breeders' Cup was on the following Saturday. So, so coming off a, a six-day layoff. <laughs> Which, uh, right, which these days wouldn't wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be happening. But um, well, there wouldn't be any races. <laughs> There'd be no races to come. <laughs> well, the six it, day they were so. different different types of horses and different. And I had a, a, certainly a different type of uh, of training as a, as a horse trainer in in actually two worlds: the old school, which my father and and many of the great older trainers uh, were part of, and somewhat in the new school. Uh, but most of what I learned was was the old school of. of uh, the, the horse had to have a, a a real foundation to be at his very best. And in those days, when you were competing in those types of races, you were competing against some of the best trainers in America and some of the best horses. And you had to be at the top of your game to be at the at the bottom with or with them at their game. For sure. Uh, you know, you mentioned you trained him twice a day. What did that entail? Well, basically, his morning workouts would be a normal type of situation where you would do your gallops, and then after he got uh, fit enough to start uh, well, the, the works in the morning, the breezes, and then in the afternoon, I would take him out, and of course, Belmont Park, if, if you're not, I'm sure you're familiar with it, is, is kind of a sprawling complex, and it has plenty of uh, uh, paths and, and uh, dirt runways and things like that where you could basically do a little bit of light exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, jogging and things like that, and walking under under tack uh, or under the under the saddle with the rider, and uh, that just it it was a physical thing, and it was also a mental thing uh, mm-hmm. for him. I mean, it it, it put it put uh, what you say made his juices flow. Sure, got him out of the stall, got him you know, got him going. Yeah, I, right. I, you I, know, and I had as, as I said earlier, I had a wonderful person and. And Charlie Rose to the, get it done, and and uh, uh, excuse me, and Proud Truth had the one of the, the best grooms I ever worked with, a man by the name of uh, Jesse Spots, a man of color, came from uh, Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and 
he he knew Proud Truth and certainly almost all the other horses that, that he uh, that he worked with, and he could tell he could tell me things about him, uh, whether I was overdoing it or underdoing it, on how he ate in the morning and how he ate in the afternoon, uh, how much water he drank. Uh, everything, how how much he laid down, and all of those little facets were a great benefit to me in in in, in pushing him pretty hard. Sure, absolutely. Now you train mostly for uh, your, the outfits. You train mostly had homebreds, correct? You didn't have a lot of sale horses. No, basically in in my almost seven years of Calumet and fifteen years with with Darby Dan, uh, the Galbraith family, uh, they were all homebreds. Right. So you didn't. So I didn't get a chance to pick and choose the sales and spend a lot of uh, other people's money. I got what they raised, and whether they, you know, were physically correct or uh, had some defects, as a lot of horses do. Um, uh, you just kind of worked around that and, and got tried to get the very best out of all of them. Well, John, you made it to the Hall of Fame, so you obviously did pretty good with what you were handed. Well, I, as I said earlier, I had some wonderful horses to work with and some, some wonderful people to work with, so uh, all of that was a great benefit to me. And do you think, think that even though you aren't, uh, you, you obviously you're getting horses like you get what you get when you have, you're breeding your own, uh, do you think that having uh, a lot of different horses from the same mares and having the siblings is an advantage to you? Yes, it is a tremendous advantage. It, it was something that I learned from my father in the years that he trained for C.B. Whitney, and in the years before he before he became head trainer in 1946, he had been at the farm for about ten years, and he knew the mares, right. and, he, and he knew what their offsprings looked like, and, and also how to train them. And I, I got the same benefit uh, at, at Calumet, although at Calumet. The, the main benefit was the pers- person on, on the farm, Melvin Cinnamon, and the farm trainer, Ewell Rice, who they spent a, uh, a lifetime there. And, and they would give me a lot of information about the offsprings and their brothers and sisters and things like that. And, and it, that was a tremendous help. Yeah, that that's something that I think uh, is a little bit lost these days. And even the, the big outfits that, that do race some homebreds, they still sell a lot of horses. You know, they they wind up selling the uh, the colts a lot and, and keeping. Well, yes, yeah. you know, and they've got to think that you've got to realize about today's modern trainers and and the people of my era and the people of my father's era. Uh, we had. I would have to say that if you kind of averaged it out, I probably had no more than twenty horses a year to start with. Right. And at the end of the year, you would be down in numbers from the standpoint of, of horses that just didn't fit the program, or horses that that were injured uh, and needed time off. Uh, with you know a, a, maybe a dozen, and uh, so I, I look at some of the modern trainers, and they make more starts in one year than I did in twenty five. Yeah, it, it's difficult these days to uh, for people that that just have gotten involved or, or have gotten involved over the last uh, you know short period of time to to understand that some of the records of the past, like Woody Stevens winning five consecutive Belmonts with a essentially a thirty six or forty horse barn, is just one of those records that um, I mean nobody can win one or can win two in a row, you know and. It's just the numbers are, are kind of so skewed these days with these outfits of, of huge, um, huge. Well, things, you know, the, you know? the thing is, uh, about the modern outfits, and I'm not 
belittling any, anybody or, or uh, taking anything away from their accomplishments is they're basically managing uh, yeah. because you cannot have enough time in a day or particularly in a morning uh, to oversee uh, a, a huge number of horses. And also, if you have, let's say, three different strings of horses, one at, let's say, Marmot Park, one at Belmont Park, and maybe one at, uh, in Chicago or in, in Kentucky, uh, a lot of those horses, you never, the modern trainer never sees. You know, I mean, he's, he's, they're all working on kind of a, a major system. And uh, it, it, it would be inconceivable for me because, first of all, I've never had that much energy, and it certainly wasn't as, as smart as I should have been in, in a lot of situations. So, uh, training training a small uh, in those days twenty to twenty four horse uh, outfit uh, was all I could accomplish. Yeah, it's, it's it's and like listen, I harp on it a lot, and and I think it's a lot of it. Um, the the huge outfits take away from the racing product we put on the track because in the old days those a lot of the horses that work in company in the mornings would be racing against each other because they would be spread out but it, I complain about that enough <laughs> it's you know it's the, it is what it is it's just a different way of doing things and um, you know like when you talk about your the size of your outfit John the amount of you know really top horses that you had you you had a filly uh, that ran in the eighty five juvenile fillies, uh, a filly called Steelicus, who, who was a, a, a nice horse. Um, she finished third that year. Um, you know, in addition to Aladar and uh, Devona Dale, and I mean, how, how many, Sunshine Forever was a horse, um, you know, the great turf horse, distance turf horse that you trained uh, a few years later that, uh, you know, to, to, to come up with these horses year after year after year, with that size barn, um, that that's a real accomplishment for for both you and, of course, the the people that are breeding and, and raising these horses. Well, you know, it, it, uh, of course, with Calumet, uh, they had really had, uh, I guess, since the Jones boys, uh, Ben and Jimmy, had retired and they went through a number of trainers. Uh, they really didn't have uh, very much success. But when I took over, I was, as I said earlier, lucky to have some of the staff at the farm were there. But we were still working with the same mares. And this market didn't buy any uh, new mares and or didn't add even to the, uh, to, to the existing ones. And, and, and in some cases, sold off of, of a lot of, of, of the mares. But we had a, a, a nucleus, and uh, uh, it provided me with the, with the horses that I needed to, uh, you know, to have horses like Aldar and Devona Dale and Before Dawn. Three champions, and uh, and then uh, you know some other very useful horses, and uh, and also the wonderful thing about it is the first six months or uh, or more that uh, I trained for Calumet, we had terrible luck, and I just didn't have anything to work with, and I went to Ms. Markey uh, in I guess December of, of the end of the first first year, of, about eight months after taking over. And I explained to her, I said, I was so sorry that, that I had done such a terrible job with the horses that I had, and, and I, I could understand that she wanted me to resign. And she looked me right in the eye, and she said, John, she said, it wasn't you. She said, it was the horses that I gave you. And she said, next year is going to be better. And it was. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, <laughs> these days, uh, they might never give you a chance to, <laughs> to tell them you might resign. They might have already had the horses walking over to somebody else's bar. <laughs> yeah, or you got a phone call saying they were going to walk over. But uh, but those were you know uh, the thing about the sport in those days was it was a sport. Yes, 
and it was not designed to be a business. It never has been, probably never will be. Uh, but uh, it, it, uh, it, those people, the Wideners, the Whitney's, the Vanderbilt's, the Mellons, uh, the Markey's, uh, it was a, a sport, and Mrs. Markey paid poured millions of dollars into into the sport and never got a dime back for years and years and years and then you know and then of course uh, I had a little bit of success for her and, and was very proud of that. You know, going back to, to proud truth, the depth of the field of the three year olds that year was a remarkable group of, of horses. When you think about, um, you had Spendabuck, who was a brilliantly fast horse, uh, Stefan's Odyssey, who who won the Belmont, who went on and, and was a real hard-knocking horse his whole career. Uh, Chief's Crown, who who kind of made a career out of always running close in big races, but he, he was a, you know, a, a good horse. He was a champion two-year-old. Uh, you, know, you finished fifth in the Derby that year. Uh, Skywalker finished sixth. He, he wound up winning the Classic the following year. Tank's Prospect finished seventh. He wound up uh, winning the Preakness. So, I mean, it was a, a really exceptionally strong and deep a, field, a crop of three-year-olds, and, and it's easy these days. We, 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 it's funny that we judge three-year-olds. You know, in in, uh, in April, we think, oh well, this is a this is a bunch of bums, and or this is a, wow, this is a real strong year. And then a couple months later, uh, it, everything's turned. But I think part of that is that the horses race so infrequently that, like, you sometimes think a horse might be a little better than they are, but you're basing it on one or two races where. Back in, in, in 1985, in the year Proud Truth uh, was a three-year-old, the horses all had solid campaigns, eight, nine, ten races, and um, you know, a six-race campaign was considered uh, light. And uh, Again, it, it's, it's more of a statement than a question, but I think that, that, that you winning that race, the Classic, which was obviously the against older horses, and I, I, th- I think that's an achievement that just kind of maybe... It wasn't fully respected at the time, um, and because Proud Truth didn't become like a, a, a top star, and I think horses, when you look at them in retrospect, they get judged sometimes on how they were as a stallion. Like, I think Ali Sheba was just a, an amazingly good four-year-old, and he danced every dance, he, he ran on every surface, he overcame a lot, he had had a breathing problem, he had had a bleeding problem, and he just was winning and winning and winning and winning. And when he didn't win, he just got beat. And then he was such a busted stud, and you know, he, he was, of course, the tie-in to you is, is he was by Dar, that I think sometimes, it, you know, when you look back in history, that people um, kind of remember, like AP Indy, I think, was a really good horse, but because he was such a great sire... Sometimes it's uh, the reflection on him is is through his sons and and you know and and, and this is just my own uh, uh, take on it. Some you know I think sometimes that we we um, we downgrade horses because they didn't do much post career. Yes, I, I I can fully understand that. You know, I mean, of course, a lot of stallions in, in modern day stallions, and I'm, I'm seeing that in proud truth in that group. Uh, if they don't. Uh, Really hit it off right away. Uh, they're overwhelmed by the next generation or, or next group of stallions to come. You know, with, with great racing uh, credentials, uh, and and don't really given the opportunity. That, that, that using proud truth as an example. Uh, after he stood, uh, I think for had, after he had three crops reach reached the races, they gave up on him. 
and he was sold to a, uh, to a farm, a breeding farm in Panama, and he had five champions in, in Panama. Of course, their quality of racing is, is nowhere near what it is here in the United States. But again, he, he was a consistent stallion and probably if given one, one opportunity here in the United States, uh, he might well have, have done well. And then you take the exception of uh, the very, very good horse, Aldar. Uh, he was not only a great racehorse, but he was a great stallion. And if he had not come to a timely end, it would have been probably the, one of the leading sires of the, in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Although he still ranks pretty high uh, with you know uh, with his untimely death, you know there's a horse that you trained that that people have like completely forgotten these days, and he was a really good horse, and I think it was the same kind of concept in that he caught an exceptionally strong group of three year olds that year, and that's a horse named Brian's time. Talk Brian's time was a wonderful horse. I mean, he he was a diminutive. He was not very big, and uh, he. Suffered from uh, some ankle problems uh, later on in his career, but he was very, very uh, good. I mean, you know, won the Pegasus and uh, the Meadowlands and uh, some other great races. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of a funny story about Brian Stein. Brian Stein and Pedigree and Sunshine Forever, who was the champion turf horse in '88, their, their pedigrees were very, very similar. And uh, although. Uh, uh, Sunshine Forever was a more striking horse and a, and a uh, more physical uh, specimen, and uh, the Japanese wanted him terribly uh, and offered Mr. Galbraith a lot of money, and, and even in those days, the uh, numbers, uh, in comparison to the, the numbers today, and Mr. Galbraith said no. He said, uh, I need somebody to replace Roberto as a stallion, uh, but uh, my daughter owns and her husband own Brian's time, and we work together. And I think they would uh, uh, think about uh, selling him. So I think instead of the fifteen million that the Japanese offered for uh, Sunshine Forever, they took three million for Brian Stein. He went to Japan and became a, a, a leading sire uh, in, in Japan. So yeah, he probably would have made it here. And then Sunshine Forever really never clicked. It's it's so funny how that works out. And um, I think that uh, there's you know there's so many factors that go go into breeding. And it's one of the, the kind of the, the mysteries of, of, of racing and, and breeding, especially in that why some stallions um, hit and then why other stallions don't hit. I mean, a friend of mine told me one time, a breeder in Lexington, he said, Chuck, if you just knocked every stallion, you'd be right 95% of the time because 95% of them don't really turn out to be that good. It's just the way it is. And he goes, anybody who can tell you definitively this horse will be a great sire, they're, they're you know, it's, it's like a, a coin flip. And, and uh, you know, there's so many examples of great horses that, that had great pedigrees, that had a good confirmation that, did not become good stallions. And there's horses that, like, everybody kind of, like, the top stallion now is uh, into mistress, and he's got winners of all sorts, all kinds, all turf, dirt, fillies, colts. He seems like he's a little bit of distance challenged beyond, like, a mile and eight, but he's got, like, winner after winner after winner. And and he was a horse that, um, I think his second year, they were begging people to breed to him. He was like seventy five hundred dollars, and now he's like two hundred two hundred twenty five thousand. And you know, look at Danzig. Danzig was a horse that had three starts, um, and he became you know what what he did. And then 
you, you look at some other horses. Uh, I mean, like Secretariat would be. A, though Secretariat actually did prove to be a, a very, you know, a really, really good broodmare sire. But that's it was not, an extra broodmare yeah, sire. Yeah, but that wasn't what people were looking for. You know, they weren't expecting no, to, it wasn't, you to, know, to, and, to and be a broodmare sire. Just, uh, I think that, uh, of course, it's just an opinion on my part, but a lot of uh, top racehorses are, are kind of uh, misbred. They're, they're matched with mares that, that might not have been as successful, and, uh, you know, as, uh, as, as broodmares, but have great pedigrees. And a lot of times you'll find some really hard scrubbing there that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, may not have been great racehorses, uh, but they make great food mares. Um, so, as, as you say, it's a question of the ages. Nobody knows. It's, yeah. it's a I think, I, honestly, these days I think that uh, an outfit that you train for, if, if you could move them to the modern day, would do well because... I think because of the way they would raise their horses and that they wouldn't baby them and they wouldn't protect them because they're actually going to be sold as well, babies. See, yeah, I, I agree with you, Chuck. You know, you've got to realize that, that first of all, in those days, uh, a, a stallion was limited to 40 mares a year. Uh, and it was kind of a, a rule of thumb. Uh, uh, it wasn't enforced by any agency, the jockey club or whatever, but uh, but... Most uh, most breeders felt that, that forty mares was uh, a sufficient number and not to overwhelm a horse. And now, a, a really great stallion is going to be bred to over a hundred mares a year, so he's got more offspring. Uh, but uh, you've got to understand that one of the most important things about Calumet and, and Darby Dan was that they raised their horses to be race horses. Right. Uh, they uh, didn't pamper them. They, you know, were not hot hot house raised. And many of the the vast majority of the yearlings that uh, are bred uh, every year uh, are basically bred to be sold. Sure. And uh, with with those major farms and racing stables in the old days, as I keep saying, uh, they were bred to be racehorses. And and uh, if they worked out in the, in the breeding breeding shed, that was fine. But they wanted them to, to be tough and strong and hard. And you can't do that with a with a you know with a sales yearling because you don't want a sales yearling to have all those bumps and bruises and cuts that they'll get when they run in the fields and, and fight and compete with their siblings and their, you know, their, uh, their brothers and sisters. So uh, it, it's, again, one of the, the turning points of, of our business, uh, and I don't think it's worked out well for, for, for the horse uh, because nowadays, you know, you'll see a horse make whole five or six starts at the most in a year, uh, and basically... There'll be two or three months in a park, uh, and in those days, like Aldar and Affirmed, uh, they locked horns all the time and ran 20 times, 22 times as two-year-olds, uh, where, you know, Citation ran 24 times and won uh, all of them. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's just a, a different breed of cat now. When, when did you generally get your two-year-olds in? Did it, did they come in as? Uh, I would generally get them when I would go to. Uh, I wintered in those days. Uh, almost all those all those days uh, at, at Hialeah, and um, I would get them in December of their yearling year, right before they turned two. Mm-hmm. There would be some that I would not get. You know that we felt it would improve and, and needed more time at the farm. 
uh, to mature, but, you know, they really, they, uh, those that looked like a, were, uh, could stand the training and could benefit from the training, uh, I took to, to Hialeah, and uh, as I said, sometime in December, uh, it, right after I would ship the racing stable from Belmont Park to, to Florida, and then I would start working with them, uh, you know, and gradually increase their their workload. And those that were precocious uh, and, and looked like they would benefit and do well as two-year-olds, we ran as two-year-olds. And then you take a horse like Sunshine Forever, because of two things. He was, as a two-year-old, he was kind of tall and lanky, and I thought he needed time to mature and, and fill out. And also he had, uh, uh, I thought, an exceptionally good perf, uh, pedigree. And so... Uh, uh, I kept him with me all the time, uh, but didn't run him until very late in his two-year-old year, uh, only because of, of his pedigree, and I thought his future would be as a three-year-old on the turf, and uh, I got lucky and got in just right for once. <laughs> he was by uh, Roberto, correct? He was by Roberto. Yeah, yeah. Out of, out of, out of the summertime, uh, and uh, he... Uh, he was a little straight in front, by meaning his his patterns were a, a, a little uh, shorter, and uh, and he stood a little straighter in his front legs. And I thought that that would benefit from from time, and uh, and it did. Uh, so uh, you know, it's one of those things where you, with with young horses like that, it's a guessing game, and and you're hoping to do the right things. And sometimes you can see that you're doing a little bit too much, and and then you'll back off. If, if you're smart enough, and then other times you'll benefit from, uh, you know, their their precociousness. I had a wonderful two-year-old filly called uh, Before Dawn, and she was again not very uh, very tall. Uh, she was a little on the stocking side, uh, but uh, uh, and <laughs> kind of a funny story with with uh, Before Dawn is I went just uh, a calumet that year we didn't have a derby horse. And I didn't think that there was any reason for us to go to Hialeah, so we went to to a training center in Central Florida, which is now called Payson Park. And uh, before dawn was a terrible stall walker, and by that I mean he would just all day long talk, walk from the front of the stall to the back of the stall, and 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 turn in the same spot. And the, they had wood floors in, in the barn I was in. And uh, after about a month, you could see where she was boring a hole, like somebody had taken a perfect drill hmm. uh, and, and, and bored a hole in, in, in the front of the stall and in the back of the stall. And we tried everything to stop her. Uh, put mirrors in the stall, put a radio in the... Uh, uh, we bought a goat and put the goat in with her and closed the bottom door. And I think the goat lasted two days before he finally <laughs> jumped off or jumped over the door and, and we never saw him again. But... <laughs> Uh, and I didn't have much hope for her. Uh, and her pedigree was not very strong. She was by Nashua, uh, uh, I'm assuming she was by Razor Cup, which was a stallion uh, at the farm in Kentucky, Calumet. And uh, she was by a Nashua mare that had never really produced anything. I took her to Belmont. I wanted to send her back to the farm and, and just let the farm deal with her, whether they wanted to breed her or sell her. Right. And I called Melvin Cinnamon uh, about the 1st of April of that year, and said, Melvin, I said, I really don't think this support for Don is going to work out. I, I, I said, well, she has a terrible habit of stall walking. She's shown nothing in the morning. I said, she's small. Uh, and uh, he said, well, I've got run for in New York. And I said, yes, I have room for it. He said, well, take her up there, give her a couple more months, and then we'll, if there's no market right here uh, for a two-year-old filly uh, as, as a broodmare right now. So, and 
I took her to Belmont, and, and one morning I took her with three or four other Phillies to the school in the prison out of Stargate. And it was like turning a light on a dark room. <laughs> and she was brilliant. She was limited. She couldn't, she wanted a mile and a sixteenth and a couple of smaller stakes. And, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, she was just absolutely brilliant. I, I, of course, the Melvin Cinnamon, the farm manager, never let me forget that, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, she was a uh, champion two-year-old filly in 1981. She won the Spinaway, the Matron, uh, the Asterita, which I, in the fashion, I don't even think they run those races anymore. No, they don't. You know, it's one of those uh, uh, two-year-old stakes that they got at Saratoga. Yeah, they, they've... Uh, people... It, it's interesting that the people just don't start two-year-olds early anymore. They just... Uh, like it's completely gone out of fashion just in the last, I'd say, eight or nine years, where they just push it off yeah. further and further and further. And well, you know, that's that's. I think that's been uh, part of of uh, the, the modern racing that has been altered significantly by the Breeders' Cup. Yeah. Uh, I'm not knocking the Breeders' Cup. I think you know it's, it's been a wonderful series for for some things. But you look at some of the major uh, groups of, of states. Both for three-year-olds, two-year-olds, four-year-olds that were so traditional uh, in, in the uh, 20th century that have been either dropped or downgraded uh, or, or changed uh, their dates uh, uh, to accommodate horses for the Breeders' Cup. And I think that that was not a good thing. I'm a kind of a history-type guy and traditional, and I, some of those major races uh, in, in New York and uh, in California have been... Uh, 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 lesser, uh, some lesser important with everybody thinking about the money and the Breeders' Cup. No, that, that's, I mean, you think about the Belmont Championship meet, the entire meet itself used to be a form of a Breeders' Cup. And uh, those, the, you think about the older um, handicap type, well, you know, they're not, oh, yeah. we don't, we don't you know, have much I for handicaps think- these days, but you had the Woodward, then you had, the, you know, you had the Marlboro Cup, you had the Jockey Club. And those three races, that series of three races, was like the proving ground. It was that was it, you know. And and now that they've kind of, I mean, the Woodward is at Saratoga. Uh, there is no more Marlboro Cup, and and the Jockey Club um, has kind of been reduced to a a Breeders' Cup prep of sorts. And it's not even a popular route. Uh, guys have, no. have have tried to you know use other. Uh, they get there other ways, and and now you know you have so many horses, and we're talking not like. Pretenders, but the top of the the cream of the crop are are, are going off into the Breeders' Cup off two and three month layoffs. It's, yep. it's and, a completely uh, different you know, way and, of doing and, things. Uh, in, in a lot of situations, particularly in in uh, look back to my father's era, uh, if you wanted to have a champion, yeah. particularly if you raced in New York, you had to make all those starts. You couldn't just come up with one big race in in, in your career and be even considered as, as a champion. And, and now, if a horse wins the Breeders' Cup, regardless of, of how his uh, past campaign has been that, that entire season, uh, they're right at the, at the top of the running. Uh, I can remember when I was a, a child, and my father won in, in 1951 the uh, Jockey Cup Gold Cup with a horse called uh, uh, Counterpoint, who turned out to be three-year-old a year. Uh, but but Counterpoint came into that race with some very very solid credentials, and and in those days, a horse had to, uh, or 
you know, they would have said, well, he ran one great race, and it was a fluke. And we do see that in the Breeders' Cup. We see a lot of horses win the Breeders' Cup, uh, and, and, you know, and they uh, get the opportunity to be considered as champions, you know, just on that one race. So it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great thing for the game, but it has had some, uh, some uh, benefits that have not been great for the game. True. There's a yin and yang for everything, you know, for for every action is a reaction. Let me, uh, John, let me ask you about a couple of horses I've just, uh, I've been asked to ask you about. Uh, what about a filly you train named Plenty of Grace? Very nice filly. Very useful. Uh, and uh, I, I think I made a, made a major mistake running her in a couple of spots where I shouldn't, but Plenty of Grace was a, an exceptionally good filly. Uh, and, uh, and another filly called Love You by Heart, uh, who uh, I thought had an opportunity to be champion grass horse. And, um, um, but, you know, things work out. I was, I was there. I, I will tell you, I was very disappointed that, uh, that, uh, uh, that Proud Truth was not voted the three year old of his year. But a lot of that, I, I account for politics and yeah. good or bad, whether it was true or not. It, uh, I, I was disappointed in that. Yeah. It's, uh, well, you know, today's a, <laughs> this, and of course, if I had not, this, as, as a, uh, a career role, um, after, uh, uh, Aladar won the champagne and beat affirmed, uh, I, I, I should have never run him again from the standpoint of if I was just shooting for a championship, I, I think he would have gotten a great consideration because in those days, the champagne was the, the epitome of, of a two-year-old colt race. Right. And uh, uh, I, I might have had a, a better shot of uh, being voted a two-year-old of the year if, if I'd have uh, stopped and not gone on and run in the law of maturity. Uh, but, you know, that's that's hindsight. and uh uh, apparently, I was a little open, opti- over optimistic. Uh, John, you're still holding it. You're still holding that that in after all these years. That uh, just kind of shows the passion you have, and and that's something that certainly is uh, is admirable. You had a horse I really liked, and and one of the reasons I liked because I cashed a big bet on him once, and that's a horse named Kyle R. Man. Yes, in the with the Gotham, right? Is that he won Gotham? Gotham. Yep. Yes, I, I I really I like that horse, and and I and I think that was like the best last big race he won. I, you know, for some reason, and I never came up with the answer, but uh, his his Gotham was brilliant, and Angel Cordero rode him, and uh, uh, and Angel came back and said, you know, the horse had a lot of potential, and he he said he was a little bit on the on the green side, but still he he uh, he really uh, put out the great effort that day. And after that race, Kyle's Iron Man was never the same. I, and I don't know why. Uh, he coming off of a victory, a horse would have, you know, certainly a young horse like that would improve. But he just, uh, he seemed to lose interest in uh, in, in training. And uh, I could never get him back to, to the form that I, that I was satisfied with. It's funny how... If they, if, how, if they how, could only talk. You know, it's it's funny how. I mean, I've had horses, certainly not at that level, but I've had horses that that just stopped performing. And you would send them, you you would do X-rays, you would do scans, you would send them to clinics, you'd have testing done, you'd blood testing, and and nothing showed. And and it was just a, it's one of the most maddening things because, you know, you you want to have an explanation for everything. And these days, 
I mean, when you look at the x-rays, I, I remember I was helping Dr. Cheney out uh, back in uh, the, the, the 90s at the sales. And this is when we still had to go and develop the x-rays. And we didn't have the digitals like they have now, which we instantly get the x-ray. We had to run to the hospital or we had to stand in line and, and run them through the developing machine. And you look at the x-rays from, from back then. And we're talking the 90s, not the 60s. And they look like white clouds <laughs> when you look at what we have now where you can see everything. And um, sometimes even with all that technology that we have and the new uh, scans that they have, the, the, um, the, the machines and uh, the, the biomechanics, and sometimes there's just no telling why a horse just goes south. And, I mean, you would think most of the time it's because there's some kind of underlying physical, you know, issue that, that maybe just doesn't come out until they put a lot of stress on it because that's the other thing is, is I've had a lot of horses that train great and then ran bad. It wasn't like every horse that kind of runs a poor performance, you're like, ah, well, you know, we were holding on. I mean, a lot of times they train great and then they go out there and run like crap. And that that's the one of the things that, that trainers understand and people, I think, that don't train horses think sometimes that we have all the answers or, or we know a little more than we actually do. And, and, it, and it's a guessing game more often than, than you like to think about it. Well, maybe it wouldn't be, it's one of those situations where we know too much and understand too little. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's, uh, that, that can certainly be the case. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to have you, Mr. Veach, sir. It, it's, uh, it's great to talk about um those great horses and, and that great day i mean uh that that was that was a a really uh an underrated training feat and, and bringing him back under that time constraint uh that that schedule that you had that you, where you were squeezed and couldn't miss a day and to win the prep six days before and then have the horse and um we're going to leave by playing a replay of of his uh of his win. Obviously, we don't have any video, but um, uh, you might, I don't know if you want to stay on and, and listen to it, but uh, he, he, he was last early in the field. Um, he was behind a horse named Turkoman, who was a dead closer, and he outkicked them all, and, and that was, um, I really thought that uh, he, he was a horse I really wanted to, to, to talk about this week with the Breeders' Cup being this week, and uh, I mean, everybody's doing shows where they pick horses, but if I knew how to pick horses, uh, my life would have been a lot easier. But, um, Mine, too. <laughs> but, well, Chuck, thank you very I do much. Appreciate I really it. enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, will you do me one favor? Yes, sir. Don't call me Mr. Veach. Just call me John. <laughs> okay, John. No problem. <laughs> All right. Thank sir. you, sir. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was that was Hall of Fame trainer John Veach talking about Proud Truth and some of the other great horses and the uh, a different era. It, it was a different era, and, and John was a big trainer. Oops. John was a big name when I was a kid, and uh, I'm sure he probably loves to hear that, but uh, uh, he was one of those trainers that the Mac Millers, the Woody Stevens, they, they trained for the... the, the uh, you know, Mac Miller trained for Rokeby, Woody Stevens trained for Claiborne and, and the Kwiatkowski and uh, some of them other, uh, the, the Phipps family and, and, and Shug. Well, you know, when I was a kid, Shug trained uh, for Loblolly before he trained for 
uh, Phipps and, and Angel Penna Senior was training for uh, for Phipps, but it was just a different era where uh, the big families owned horses and they bred them and they raised them and uh, the families kind of uh, persevered and and uh, and that that was that was the era that that John was one of the last uh, real successful trainers uh, that had you know small barns especially compared to now where 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 20 horses guys have 20 horses they've never even seen they're out in the back somewhere and uh to 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 accomplish what he accomplished when you look at the uh doing the research for this i look at the long list of of top stake races that he won and and and, uh you know grade one winners and champions that that he had with with a, a 25 horse stable is really uh is really something um we're gonna play uh we're going to play the classic, Proud Truth and the 1985 Breeders' Cup Classic from Aqueduct. Cape Crown is surging. Cape Crown now emerges from in between horses. Imperial Choice is right there. Cape Dancer is closing boldly on the outside. Proud Truth, he was last down the back trip. He's taking it to the leader. It's Cape Dancer in front with less than a furlong to run. Proud Truth is right at his lip. Proud Truth on the outside. Cape Dancer is game. Proud Truth ahead. Final jumps to defeat Gate Dancer. Those two were heads apart, bobbing at the finish. The final time, two minutes and four fifths of a second. Proud Troth, the winner of the second Breeders' Cup Classic. Was, uh, you, you know, you listen to the you listen to the names, and th- those were those were really good horses. That that was a, an exceptionally strong field. It wasn't a huge field. But uh, it, it was a good field of, of solid horses that uh, that took runs at each other all year long, and um, Turkleman wound up being—he uh, he actually wound up running second in 1986. Uh, Skywalker won in '86, I think that year. I think it was Santa Anita was uh, 1986, and Skywalker um, beat Turkleman. Turkleman just got too far behind. At Santa Anita and uh, uh, Cheats Crown again. He, he was uh, he was a good horse. He, he was a solid, hard knocking horse. He, he danced every dance, and um, uh, the, the, that was one of the great things about the era of, of um, that we're talking about was that horses raced against each other, and you know that that was a really it was something that's different. Again, I don't want to just harp on everything being negative today, but, um, you know, horses, they raced. And uh, speaking of racing a lot, we're now joined by Hall of Fame jockey George Velasquez. George, my pleasure to have you on. It's great to have you on. We, we just had John Veach on. We were talking about Proud Truth and... Uh, you know a little about Proud Truth, right? Are you there? Okay, I'm, I'm listening. Okay, I'm yeah. Listening. Proud Truth, that that was your uh, your second Breeders' Cup winner. Actually, your second Breeders' Cup winner of the day. Right. You had won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies, 
on a horse for Wayne Lucas, Twilight Ridge. Um, and the Breeders' Cup kind of came along. What year? When did you first start riding in the United States? I think 1967? 1965. 65, right, okay. Yeah, so... The Breeders' Cup didn't even start it until 1984, so we're we're talking uh, 20 years. You had been riding already before they even had they came up with the Breeders' Cup uh, concept. Right. But um, uh, we're talking about uh, we talked about you know quite a few of John's famous horses. Obviously, uh, probably the most famous one you rode would be uh, Alidar. Correct. Alidar. He's probably the best horse I ever rode. You know, it's it's so funny that you talk about um, sometimes it's it's the luck that you have is better than the skill. And that if Aladar had been born in a different year, then he would have won the Triple Crown. But he just happened to be born in a year where there was a horse who, like affirmed, who um, yeah, unfortunately I know. had every his number. Time, every time I think of it, it, it hurts. You know, because I was second in the three races. But if you look at it a different way, uh, a friend put me on the, on the map in, in Alida. Yes. Because it's the only horse that has finished second in the three races of the same horse. You know, so I guess one hand washes the other. <laughs> no, that, that, that's, uh, that's very, very true. Um. Talking about uh, Proud Truth, you rode him in the, the prep race. Uh, he had run in the dis- Discovery six days before. Is that correct? Yes. So when going into that race, I, I, and I don't remember, I mean, it was 35 years ago, so you may not remember all the, every detail about it, but um, that was the plan, right? The plan was to run in that race and then run wheel right back in the Classic. Correct. And did you did you save a little bit running in the discovery, or, or was he all out in that race? No, he he, he was a horse that uh, he will give you whatever he's got, whatever you wanted. When when you're ready for, he's there. So, but I wouldn't say that he was all out, but it was a good race, a good prep for him for the big race. You know, it's just kind of. Um, it's hard for people that, that didn't follow racing back then to understand that it's actually possible to run a horse a week before a big race and, and, and not have them, uh, you know, get knocked out. I mean, these days you have, um, we, we have so many horses coming into the Breeders' Cup this weekend that, that are off two- and three-month layoffs, you know, by design. It's, it's not even that uh, they couldn't run, but this is the, it, it's, a, it's just a different way of training, obviously, and uh um, I just think American racing suffers a little bit because, you know, the the great rivals that we used to have, you know, you'd ride a horse and you'd be riding them back every two weeks, every three weeks, and, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's frustrating to me. Uh, you, you rode a horse, Lady Secret, and uh, a lot of people rode her because, you know, she, she ran a lot. But um, in the 1985 Breeders' Cup, you were second on her. To uh, an entry mate, uh, life's magic. Um, right. But 
Lucas, back then Wayne Lucas was was a super trainer, but he was the only super trainer. There wasn't anybody else. Wayne was the only guy that was running multiple horses in these races. And in the juvenile fillies, which you won, that was your first Breeders' Cup win. Um, you actually, uh, his entry finished second. Um, you you ran. Uh, um, well, my memory's failing me, but um, you you won on Twilight Ridge, and uh, and she was named. I, I'm pretty sure she was named Champion Two Year Old that year as well. But um, you won the Derby in uh, on Pleasant Colony. In Pleasant Colony, 1981. Yes, and the Preakness. And the Preakness, right, right. Um, third in the Bama. It was a very, very slow pace, which he didn't have him. He was quickly come from behind horse, and he made a good pace, so they come back to him, and they were walking. Yeah. It was, uh, like 25, 51. Yeah. So when I got my move up around the 3-8 pole, that I got close to them, they, they left me there again because they, they started running things there. The pace increased the pace, and uh, and that was no good for me. Yeah. And it's still, he finished third. That was a good race anyway. You won the um, the Jockey Club Gold Cup in a, a famous running of it, actually, in um, in 1973 on Prove Out. Yeah. And you beat Secretariat. In that race, I believe. Is that right? Uh, or I don't know. Maybe he didn't run the, that race. I thought there was the, the Woodward. The Woodward, yes. The Woodward, right. Wood, the Woodward. I'm sorry. And you, you also won um, You won the Jockey Club on uh, a couple years earlier on, on a mare, uh, Shuvi. I won it with Shuvi. Yes. You know, it's funny that she kind of gets forgotten when people talk about like the great mares of all time. Yeah, but um, she was definitely one of the, the great fillies, one of the best fillies I ever rode, and I rode a lot of good ones. Yeah, I mean she she was a champion older mare. Uh, she won the Jockey Club Gold Cup. She's she's in the Hall of Fame. She won the um, Diana two years in a row. Uh, the Top Flight. She you know when these were like Grade One races. She won the Alabama, the Mother Goose, the Coaching Club. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a shame. And uh, I mean, she made forty four lifetime starts. Um, forty four lifetime starts. I think if you added up all the mares that are running in this year's distaff, you might not get forty four lifetime starts. If you if you added them all up. Uh, but um, it's a uh, it, you know it's a different it's a different era. But uh, um, what did you like? Uh, how many? Uh, who, who was your agent for for when you came over here? Like, how did you wind my, up in the U.S. coming from Panama? Well, uh, I was writing uh, for Raymond Navarro, the name of the trainer mm-hmm. in Panama at the time. I was running everything for him. And I was doing great. I was doing good, very good. I was the leading writer. And uh, it was, it got to a point that I got suspended over an hour and an hour for no reason. Just a little, very, very little thing. Mm-hmm. They give me days and 
So I got disgusted and I said, you know what, I, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go to the United States. And I heard the Manuel Icaza, he went through Mexico and then from Mexico he jumped to the United States. And that's what I, I, I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I bought my ticket and everything to go to Mexico. And two days before departure, here comes Raymond Navarro and asked me, listen, I have a good friend, uh, a prominent owner in the United States that he needs a jockey, and I recommend you. Are you willing to go? I said, of course. And then I showed him the tickets. I said, look, I'm ready to go to Mexico and then jump from Mexico to the United States. And he said, okay, great. So I'm going to take you. So we flew to Miami, and then in Miami uh, we went to... Mr. Hooper's lawyer, lawyers, mm-hmm. and from there, then we went to Atlantic City. That was at the time Mr. Hooper had a bunch of horses in Atlantic City. So they gave me a little freely to work by the name Kip Point, and they gave me a week. And I'm like, a week? Panama, we don't use the weight to, to work horses, you know. <laughs> so I said, man, she must be very bad, slow, you know. Right. But the trainer told me, I want you to to, to work her in 3.8 and 35. And I'm like, wow, that's so very fast. And they give me weight. And she must be kind of lazy. And it was the opposite. I, well, I went to a pole and I let me go, and she went brrr, so fast, very, extremely fast. But then, in the last 80 of a mile, she started walking. Mm-hmm. She slowed down completely. And I started working on her with a whip. So we passed the wire, come back. She was 35 and a fifth of a second. So they sent me back to a lot of city, that means I me to Miami. To see Hooper's, Mr. Hooper's lawyers and to sign the contract. Mm-hmm. So that was my tryout. And uh, then I signed the contract and I came back to Atlantic City and Mr. Raymond Navarro, he went to back to Panama. But he convinced me, Mr. Raymond Navarro, because he told me Mr. Hooper, he is the one that got Braulio a contract in the United States. And then when I, when I heard that, I said, oh, yeah, of course I want to go and ride for Mr. Hooper. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the beginning. Yeah, Fred Hooper brought a, a lot of jockeys up in, and, and started their careers out. And at the beginning, I had a hard time because the language, you know, I couldn't speak English. And, and the trainer, his name was uh, Anthony Badaro. Mm-hmm. He was uh, very, very strict. Street. So he got me galloping horses, walking horses, doing the shed row, cleaning tracks, and that's something that I already went through. Yeah, I was a living right in Panama. I, I was not doing that anymore. I did that to learn how to ride. Mm-hmm. So when I came here on the contract, I, he got me doing all that stuff. Meanwhile, the horses were running and somebody else was riding the horses. And I'm supposed to be there, right? So I got pissed off, I mean, pissed off. And uh, <clears throat> I got myself in Tepper. And I went to talk to uh, Mr. Badala. 
the trainer. Mm-hmm. And I told the kid, the guy that interpreted, I said, tell him that I came here to ride the horses. I'm not riding horses, I'm galloping in the morning, I'm walking the horses, I'm doing the shed roll and taking the tires, and I'm, I'm already went through that. If he, if, if, I want to ride. So he told the guy, the interpreter, he said, tell him, tell me, tell him that uh, he's got a contract and with Mr. Hooper, and if, if he goes back to Panama, because I mentioned that I want to go back to Panama. If he goes back to Panama, he cannot ride in Panama and nowhere in the, uh, in the world because I have the contract. Mm-hmm. And I say to the guy, I say, you know what? Tell him that I'm 19 years old. Three years later, I'll be 22. I'm still young. I can wait three years without riding. But I'm not going to put up with this anymore. But I want to, I can have to ride, and I signed a contract to ride horses for Mr. Hooper. Mm-hmm. So, I packed my stuff. I didn't say anything else to him. I packed my stuff and I left. I went back to Miami, and I got myself uh, an interpreter, a friend of mine over there, and I went to see Mr. Hooper's lawyers. And then I, I, I explained to him what's happening, what he's doing to me. And many mornings I come out and I'll come into the barn and good morning, Mr. Bernardo, he don't even answer me. He don't even look at me. So I said, listen, I, I, I don't want to go through this. So they said, don't worry about it, we want to talk to him. So they got me an airplane ticket, they sent me back to Atlantic City. <laughs> when I, come, I came back to Atlantic City, I was gone for three days. Mm-hmm. He knew, he found out because the lawyers. But I didn't tell him that I was leaving. Right. So when I came back, I started galloping my horses, walking them, and cleaning tag, and I, like 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 I was doing before. And then uh, two days later, I saw my name in the overnight, otherwise in the in the in the program. I saw my name in the in, in the Philly that I was. It's not good, right? So I rode the filly, and she won. That was my first ride. That was your first one. And that, but that was, Atlantic City was racing at night then? No, no, daytime. Were, daytime? Okay. In Atlantic City at daytime, yes. So I remember that her name was Kid Point, and she paid $18. I remember all that. <laughs> <laughs> never forget your first one. Never, 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 never. But that filly, that she opened up the doors for me. Sure. And then he started writing me more, and then I started winning without an agent. And uh, on the first two weeks that I rode there, I won like 17 races. Wow, without an agent. Without an agent. So he says, you know what, I'm going to get you an agent. I said, okay. So he introduced me to Vic Gilardi. Yes. At the time, he was uh, an agent for... I can't remember his name right now. But he was one of the top riders, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, Vic started working for me, and we started winning. And winning, and winning. We left, we left, uh, we left uh, Atlantic City. We went to, to Garden State. In Garden State, I won 
Well, I remember one afternoon, I went six straight. Straight. Six straight. The third, yeah, straight. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eight. <laughs> <laughs> six straight. And then I went to, we went to, uh, I think it was Mammoth Park, and then mm-hmm. from there we go to, we went to Miami. <laughs> you went so to Miami fine. for the winter? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was such a good agent and such a hard-working man. Yes, he was in a those nice days, man. they don't have no computer or nothing like that in those days. And he used to write everything down. Mm-hmm. He knew the names of all the babies, the two-year-olds, the three-year-olds, four-year-olds, all, the, all over the country. And he, he, he could get me mounts everywhere, any place. He was a top, top, top. He was one of the best ever. He, he was your agent for a long time. We were, we were together for, I think it was 20, 23 years. Right. That's yeah. That, that's uh, that's not something that happens anymore. No, 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 no. He was my agent from 65 to 80, 86. At the end of '86. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a, a, that, that's, a that's, that's a long time. That's like a marriage. Yeah. yeah. And we separated because I I got myself a contract in Europe. Right. To ride the horses for Mr. Fustock, my most Fustock. And that that was to ride him in France. In France, yes. yeah. So how how did that go? They went all right. It's just that uh, it took me a couple of weeks to to get acquaintance with all the race tracks. Yeah, because right. they race uh, uh, different tracks almost every day. And it's, 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 they they water the courses down there, right? They make them really. They make them soft. Yeah, some ones is just a different kind of style of racing, I guess. Right, big fields and yeah. Did you run in it? Did did did. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I'm not very familiar with French racing. Like, most of the racing we see here is, is from England or Ireland, but do they have straightaway races there, like they have in, in England? What kind of races? Straight races, where they just run, you run like five furlongs or six furlongs, so straight, there's no turns. Oh, straight? Yeah. Yes, too. They have, uh, in France, especially, um, uh, what was the class, um, Long Champ. Yeah. Long, they have a, a race going a mile, straight away. I had a straight. It's a mile that goes straight, huh? That's that's. Uh, yeah. I ran a horse in Hong Kong. A horse named Battle One. He was a pretty good sprinter, and you know, of course, over here, all the races around a turn, and the race there was five furlongs, but it was a straight race. And I remember here in Fallon rode him, and he said to me, "He goes, you know, if this horse had gotten." had had some experience doing this. The horse who won the race had won like 17 in a row, so he won easy. We weren't going to beat him. He said, but he goes, we could have hit the board. He goes, he spent half the race trying to go to the rail because, you know, like when in, in U.S. horses we break and, we, and and you go to the inside by the rail. And, right. and, and with a straightaway race, like 
there is no rail. You know, he doesn't see the rail in the, in the inside, doesn't see it in the outside. He's just kind of running with the pack. And he said he, he was trying to go to the inside. He goes, it wasn't like he was trying to get in. He goes, as soon as I got him closer to the rail, he took off again. And I said, you know, he goes, it just was, that's what happens sometimes. And I said, you know, there are no straightaways in the U.S. <laughs> I can't do it. But, uh, yeah, that was always the funny thing about the European races is just the style of, of riding is, is a little bit different. And then, like you said, the courses, you're riding at a different course all the time. Yeah, completely different. Uh, now I'm, I'm not sure if it was uh, Longchamp or Maison Lafitte that I have the straightaway only that I rode a mile straight. Right. I second. I, I think it might have been Maison Lafitte. Did, did you have a problem over there with the language? Or was there enough people that spoke English or Spanish that you could figure it well, out? There was enough people that spoke English. Yeah, and and my wife, uh, Margaret, she she bought me a, a dictionary, mm-hmm. English, French, French, English, Spanish. So every time I was stuck, I would I'd get the book. <laughs> <laughs> the only French, the only French words I know are all curse words because Jean Luc Samin taught me all the curse words. I said, Jean Luc, how do I say this in French? Said, what do you want to say that for? I said, just tell me. <laughs> So I can't say anything in French because it'll be bad. But um, <laughs> uh, you rode a horse a couple times. This was a horse who was obviously one of one of the all time great horses, and he was trained by a guy who was not an easy guy to get along with, um, which is one of the reasons why he he might have not gotten his due in, in his time. Where his time has gone on, people have looked back and seen and said, "Wow, you know." And that was spectacular bid. Uh, you rode him as a two-year-old in the Champagne. Um, yeah, twice. And I won with him twice. Yes. Yeah, he was, uh, I mean, certainly he, he was, as a four-year-old, he was almost untouchable. But, um, you know, if you think about, I, I was I did a story on him a couple of weeks ago about his four-year-old year, just his four-year-old year. And it was a great. And I mean, his four-year-old year was almost unparalleled. And he, he, no one ever came close to him. He set a bunch of track records, and he just was dominant. You know, dominated to where the point where the Woodward was run, and no one ran against him. But I was thinking to myself, if he, if the trainer hadn't been so stubborn, and he had kept you on that horse, that horse probably would have won the Triple Crown. Probably. I mean, I don't like to talk bad of the dead, but, but you know. The the rider that he had was not a world class rider. You were a world class rider. You were you know you were at the top of the game, and and, and especially during that era, when you were really doing great. And and it, it just uh, like tell me about the you know riding him in particular. It was like uh, like driving a Cadillac. It was so smooth. He was quick out of the gate. He had the speed that you can use it, whatever you want to be, one, two, three, four. And he's got a stamina. He was a very, very nice horse. Yeah. He's like, like I said, Ophalida, one of the best I ever had. Yeah, you had a, um, I mean, there was a period where the champagne stakes produced in five years. Foolish pleasure, honest pleasure, Seattle slew, alley darn, spectacular bid. <laughs> you know, it's like it's pretty. It's a pretty hard group, uh, and you, and you won too. You won it with Aladar and, and with spectacular bid both, and uh, you won. You also won that race in 1980 with a horse uh, 
Lord Avey. You remember Lord Avey? Yes, of course. He's another top, top horse that I wrote. He was so nice. You wrote a lot of good fillies over the years. Good fillies, good fillies, and good horses. Uh, I was, thank God I was lucky that uh, besides my ability, I have good geology as an answer. Yeah. They always look, be looking for the, the best horses. They always look for horses that are like five to one to, to even money. Yeah. Tell me about Chris Everett. That's another one. Real <laughs> good. Tap, tap, tap. She he was so nice. I remember that uh, I believe when I wrote it the first time, oh, she, I look at her race and I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Eddie Maple was riding her. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was hitting her through the stretch. And she was switching the tail. And I told my agency, yeah, Philippe, see if you can get me that mark. And she could be that day. So the next time, he put me on. And I never tortured with the whip. Never hit her. Just tap him in the shoulder. And she gave me everything she got. And I won so many big races with her. We went to California, won the match race against Nick Marks. Yes. She was nice. She was nice, nice. And it was easy to ride because she got speed. And the only thing is she don't like to be beat. She don't want to be hit. And that's what uh, what I did. You know, I put the whip away, and I, when I, I want to ask her to run, I tap him in the shoulder. I don't even show the whip to her. I just tap him in the shoulder. And uh, a sharp to him, and she takes off. You know, speaking of that, George, you know, we are in an era now where obviously things are changing rapidly in the sport, some to the good, some to the bad. One of the biggest, most contentious issues that we're dealing with is the issue of the, the whip. And give me your feelings on... The changes that they're making, um, I'm not telling, I'm not asking you to like come out against for whatever, but just how would, if you were given the mandate where you could only use the whip underhanded and you were limited to three strikes or six strikes or whatever during the entire race, how would that have affected you as a rider? Well, I'll tell you what, there's some horses that they need to. They whip. You gotta hit him. You hit him, and they give you some more and more and more. But if you put the whip away, or you don't hit him, they get lazy. They slow down on you. So not that you have to beat him up, hit him eight, ten, twelve, fifteen times. No, but you gotta hit him. If you have the whip, and then they hit. you hit him once, you respond, and then you can hit right uh, two, three, four jumps and hit him again. You don't have to beat him up like uh, one after another week, you know. Just just uh, hit him when, uh, when you need it, when you need to hit him. So they can give you whatever they got. Because some horses, they don't, they could, they don't hit him and they, they send the years back and they slow down and they don't want to 
they don't want to do it. Right. So you have to make them do it. What about the rail? During your era, you didn't see guys coming up the rail like they do now. Uh, what was, was, I mean, I've been told, obviously I've never ridden in a race because I'm bigger than most horses, let alone jockeys, but what, you know, the, the idea of coming up the inside where it didn't seem to be, you guys didn't do that very often. Um, well, in my days, it was very, very tough to, to get to on the rail because there was too many top riders. As mm-hmm. you can see, as you can know, that uh, my days, most of the riders that I was riding with, they are all Hall of Famers. Zalafi, Cordero, uh, McCallum, Rani Turka, Eddie Maple. You have so many top, top riders that, that you cannot afford to to let them get through on you on the fence. First of all, because uh, cost you the race, and second of all, that they they get get into you and the and the jackson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they will call you all kind of names. <laughs> Why are you getting through and that? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I rode when I first started training. Um, I used uh, in Kentucky Craig Perrette. and Craig was kind of on the downside of his career, and, and he only wanted to ride good horses, which you know was understandable. And and I had some good horses and. And uh, I remember he had a, uh, there was one jock, James Lopez. And Lopez had come up the inside on him a couple times. And Craig had told him, he said, if you come up the inside on me one more time, that'll be, that'll be the last time. And, and, and it wasn't even a race I was in, and, and I was just standing there watching. And, and all of a sudden, on the backside, going past the half-mile pole, <laughs> he must have tried to be, beat him to the, to the turn and, and, and correct he pulled the left rein and off went Lopez, and he never tried to give up the inside again. But you know, it's just uh, I remember my ex-wife Tony Black. She she came up the rail on Tony Black at uh, at at Keystone or Parks or whatever Philadelphia Park, I think it was then, and and she was a bug. And and, and he told her, he goes, I didn't put you, I, I didn't put you in a bad spot because you're a bug. You didn't know better, but don't do that again. <laughs> and she's like, okay, Mr. Black, I won't do that. I, I'll never do that again. But um. You know, you see riders now, and it, it just, when I watch, um, it's so easy, George, sometimes to forget things going back 20, 30, 40 years. And then you watch a replay of a race, and then it's like, oh, yeah, that horse is in the race, or this happened. And, you know, sometimes your memories are a little, a little skewed. But when you watch the replays um, of some of the, the, the races in the 80s and 90s, because there's not much from the 70s, riders rode straight. Nowadays, you see these guys, and they're all over the place in the stretch, and they're hurting, and they're taking guys in and out, and like the stewards have just kind of let it go to the point where it's almost dangerous, and it's also it's tough to tell now what a foul is and what a foul isn't, and and you know you watch some of the great races of of all time. And the greatest jockeys, you know, in the history of racing, and they're running, and they're riding straight as an arrow, and it's, you know, let the best horse win. And, um, you know, you see races today, and, and uh, like, what's your feeling on, on making, how do we get guys to not herd, <laughs> you know, other than uh, giving them, you know, you know, Paco Lopez is my friend, but Paco's all over the place. 
I mean, he's literally, he goes five pass out to get a guy. And, and like, it just doesn't seem like that is conducive to safety or to to good riding. See, what happened is that uh, it's a lot different race riding than try to be a race rider and being all over the place. So you got to be careful how to race ride. Uh, another ride, you know. So, so you don't get disqualified. You don't grab somebody. Things like that. You have to be careful about it. But nowadays, uh, like you say, uh, they're all over the place, and you know, I guess they want to be a race rider, but race riding. But uh, you got to know how to do it. You know, some of the guys they they they're too wild. There, in nineteen eighty. The Preakness Stakes was kind of a controversial finish with a horse named Codex, who who, uh, who Cordero rode, who uh-huh. kind of came out on a horse, and and uh, then uh, the, the decision got got uh, you know it got to the commission, then it got to the courts, and this and that. When you watch that race now, it doesn't even stick out as as like something that is that out of the ordinary. Those those kind of moves happen like all the time, and. Um, well, he did. He did come out, but he never posed that horse, never brought him. Right. That's like race riding, but he can't intimidate the horse. Mm. The outside horse. I think it was a field. Uh, uh, but, hey, they didn't take him down because there was no uh, contact. Right, right. But he did intimidate the house. He did. So he put it down either way. And, you know? and that, you know, my, my point being that, like, that happens all the time now. <laughs> I mean, you see horses drift like that literally on a daily basis. And and it's um, it's, it's more of a statement than a question. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, in your day, if you had done that, uh, you know, you... Did the jockeys police themselves a little bit more than um, than they do these days? Like when you were in the room, and 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 someone did something like that, like it would take care of itself. You guys, you know, took care of it without going to the stewards. You just, you know, you would talk to a guy or say, "Hey, you know, what the hell?" Yeah. Because yeah, you can you can come to uh, to blows too. <laughs> <laughs> you can get into a fight. Big fight. Right. So, yeah, well, that's got to happen sometimes. You know, because it's, it's everyday races and there's nine races a day. And the top riders is like eight, is like nine, is like seven. And one of those races, uh, uh, you overdo it and then you get yourself in trouble. With the rider over the food. You always have to be careful. I, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago about the schedule of racing that we have these days, which is so uh, it, it's so cut down. I mean, they're just not the racing. And I said, you know, New York used to be six days a week, all year long. Even at Aqueduct in the winter, they raced six they raced six days a week. Tuesday was our only dark day. And uh, remember when the Meadowlands opened, where you'd be riding in New York six days a week, and then 
and go over to the Meadowlands and, and ride in some of those stakes too. Or I remember that very well. <laughs> you know, those. Uh, I remember when the Meadowlands opened; it was like the big thing, and and uh, it did really well for a while. But, um, you know, you won some big races at, at the Meadowlands. Yes, I did. Yeah. But uh, you know, you guys just rode more, and and uh, I mean, now we have twelve and thirteen horse cards, and especially in the big days. And back then, we mostly just had nine races, and you know, maybe they'd have ten on a special day. But but you're talking six days of racing, where, where nowadays, you know, we we have uh, some places. Santa Anita's down to three, three days of racing, and uh, yeah, you know, that's that's got to be. Uh, that's got to be tough on a jock because uh, yeah, small fields, you know, you can the top riders that take everything, so it is real tough for the for the mediocre riders. You rode some really good turf horses. Um, you recall uh, Fort Marcy? Yeah, of course. And um, what about Philly uh, Late Bloomer? What can you tell me about Late the, Bloomer? From DC International, you think? The DC International, yeah, which is a, a race that really kind of got hurt by the the Breeders' Cup. And uh, when the Breeders' Cup came in, the DC International became kind of just another race, which is yeah, right, which is, right. Which is crazy to think about, considering uh, uh, how important it, it was, um, you know, for a long time. Um, there was another horse uh, that you rode that. Um, I was I was young, but there was a horse that won a lot of stakes. Um, and there's actually there was actually two stakes named after her. Um, the very one. The very one. Absolutely. And that uh, was uh, Steve Demoro. Steve Demoro trained yeah. the very one. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Do you used to to work for the late the great Alan Durkin? Yes, sir. Right? Yes, sir. That's what I remember you from. Yes, sir. That's way back. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. People thought I was I was his, like the kid that like nobody knew because I looked like him and I was big, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, you know, who, who, who's your mom? <laughs> like, no, nah, that's not my dad. <laughs> you, well, you, you look just I, like him, but he was. Uh, you rode a lot of good horses for him. I mean, Prove out obviously was was a great horse. Yeah, and, yeah definitely. Um, anyway, very very nice talking to you. Yes, George. I'm looking forward to see you one of these days. For sure. Where where are you? Where are you now, George? You're living in. I'm in New York. I live in New York. Living in Long New York. Island. Okay. I'm about 15 minutes away from Kennedy Airport. Okay. So if you ever come to go back, come back to New York, give me a call and we get together. For sure, absolutely. And I I appreciate your time and. Uh, Reminiscing about some of the some of the great horses, and uh, appreciate uh, you coming on, George. Thank you. All right, Chuck. Just stay healthy. Stay away from the crowd. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's. Okay. I don't like them uh, in the normal terms. So, thank you, George. Appreciate you. Right on. Nice talking to you. Yes, sir. My best. Of George Velasquez, Hall of Fame rider, uh, rode. Rode so many, so many good horses over the over the years. Uh, great horses, really, and uh, um, strong rider, a very, very strong rider who uh, 
who uh, who was who was inducted into the Hall of Fame pretty much immediately when he was was um, eligible, um, which which is of course a, a sign of of respect and uh, a sign of, of of being a great rider. And I had forgotten that he had gone over to Europe and, and rode for a little while. Um, there's quite a few riders who had, who had tried that. Obviously, Steve Cawthon would be the the most famous of riders who, who who left the United States after winning the Triple Crown. Um, and I think it's hard for people to to realize how how, how big Steve Cawthon was. He he was a, a bigger than just a, a the top jockey. He, he was a, a a mainstream kind of star. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and and uh, he just was too big. And he wound up going over to Europe, where the weights back then were were significantly higher. You could ride a, a lot, a lot bigger weight, a lot, a lot more weight. Back then, the U.S. they still had a lot of races where horses were carrying um, um, 110 pounds, 108 pounds. When I first started training, um, when I first started training. I used to love to run three-year-olds against older horses in, at Churchill in May, right after the Derby. They'd start right three and up races because if you could get Pat Day, because Pat could do the weight. Pat weighed about 106 pounds, but three-year-olds used to get in at 108, and older horses would carry like 123, and it was a huge advantage. Uh, it's yes, it's early to run against older horses with three year old, but but you're you're not getting two or three pounds. You're getting fifteen pounds and Pat Day, which was almost like a head start. Um, Cash Asmussen was another one um, who went over to Europe, who started in the U.S. Though he never quite had the success that, that Steve Cawthon had, um, but, but he had won over to the to, to Europe and, and had a had a great career over there. And uh, that's Steve Asmussen's older brother. It's hard to believe when you look at Steve Asmussen now because uh, <laughs> I mean he's got he's got 112 pounds of hair, but um, Steve Asmussen was a jockey at one point, a bug boy, and and he rode in New York, and uh, um, it's hard to it's hard to imagine looking at him, and now his son is is riding, and his son is is gonna not uh, I don't know that he's gonna be able to. To stay as light as he, he, you know, again, you don't need to be as light as he used to be. Uh, most tracks don't write weights for overnight horses under 117 pounds, 118 pounds. So um, you don't have to get down to 108 or 109, or, or or wind up being four or five pounds over, which always makes which always makes people you know bring their hands a little bit. But um, uh, Eddie Maple had gone over to Europe. I don't think he had all that much success over there. Uh, I think he went to Italy, as a matter of fact. And Jose Santos had gone over to Europe to ride for a little bit, and uh, didn't really, didn't really catch on. Didn't really like it that much, and it wound up coming back over here. But uh, it's been a long time since uh, an American, a top American rider, had had gone to ride somewhere else. Um, you know the top riders get are, are running. Uh, you know when you have such a a concentration of talent in in, in, a, in so few barns, the guys who are getting on the best horses have so many good horses. 
Um, some of these guys have 10, 12 live mounts in the Breeders' Cup, which is just unthinkable almost. And then the, that's a... There, there'd be no reason to ever to ever leave, um, especially considering the the weights that we do, um, the weights that that have to be done just aren't aren't as as uh, as, as low as as they used to um, to go. Uh, I think uh, Gary Stevens also went over to Europe um, and rode briefly, um, but. Uh, you know the Irad Ortizes and the Jose Ortizes and the Flavian Pratts and, and those guys. There, there's no reason for them to leave because they're doing great here, they're really good. And uh, uh, just it's it's funny. It's just one of those things that kind of uh, doesn't doesn't really happen anymore um, with uh, with riders you know, leaving the U.S. to go to go ride outside the U.S. But uh, you know it's, it seems like we get more people coming the other way. Um, than than it was, and 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 part of that's probably it's probably purse money, uh, probably the fact that um, some of the big outfits in in Europe, uh, the Aiden O'Briens, uh, have their guys, and they don't really need anyone. Um, Ryan Moore and Murphy and those guys, they're they're they're, they're excellent riders. Sumian and and uh, you know the game's gotten smaller everywhere. And there's just not the the spread that there used to be, but um, but George was a, was a really really good rider, and you know sometimes he, he got a little overshadowed in uh, in that colony when you had so many um, you know legendary riders, and I mean he was riding during the era of you know Will Billy Shoemaker and. Uh, Lafitte Pinkai and Chris McCarron and Angel Cordero and Jacinto Vasquez and uh, just just so many great riders. Um, in later years, Jose Santos came along and uh, Gary Stevens, Eddie Delahousse, uh, just just so many really you know, legendary type riders. And um, George was always a uh, a top 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 notch guy who. Who won a lot of races, but you know the Breeders' Cup era was kind of uh, towards the end of his career, and um, I mean people forget Pat Valenzuela. I think has won like nine Breeders' Cups, and uh, <laughs> post nineteen eighty nine, uh, don't even know how many mounts he had. Uh, he he actually blew the mount on Sunday Silence. Um, that he, he was ridden at that point in his career by Chris McCarron. Uh He was another you know great jockey that, bizarrely enough, is still trying to ride. Maybe I, I don't even I haven't heard anything lately. But uh, um, you know, just a, a, it was a great era of of, of of riders. And there's a lot of good riders these days. That not, there's no that's not to denigrate the guys that ride now. There's there's some exceptionally good riders. Um, but things were spread out a little bit more back then, and, and uh, there was a little more depth, it seemed, in, in the colony, and, and the riding was was a little cleaner. There was uh, there was less swerving uh, than than there is now. Uh, like I said, the Codex the Codex incident. You watch the 1980 Preakness, and you watch it again, and, and yes, she comes out um, and never does make contact. Uh, well, he comes out and doesn't, never makes contact with uh, genuine risk. But that's a that that kind of tactic. It happens quite a bit these days, and uh, it's something that 
Um, it's something that, I'm, uh, frankly, I'm surprised has not been uh, cleaned up a little bit more uh, efficiently by the stewards because we're talking about safety a lot, and uh, a 1,000-pound horse going sideways at 38 miles an hour would seem to be uh, a little bit of an unsafe uh, venture, crashing into other ones or, or taking their ground. And uh, these Breeders' Cup races, some of these races we got coming up this weekend, and tonight we're, we're having a, a Super Tuesday show. Barry's uh, Barry and I were talking last night, and it was it was too difficult to get the PPs for the races with the post positions because there's some races the post positions have actually changed the way the 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 race is going to be run. Uh, especially the the classic is is a is a prime example of um, post positions. Post positioning matters for for the vast majority of horses. It's not that big of a deal, but. Uh, because we couldn't get the PPs, the updated PPs, quick enough, we we decided to to do Monday's show tonight. So we're gonna have that uh, tonight. We're gonna preview some of the races. We're not gonna go race by race and go through the entire field and and give you pick fours or anything like that. Um, I've got a couple opinions on a couple of races. Uh, I like some horses. There's a couple of horses I'm gonna throw out. There's a horse that everyone loves that I'm gonna not probably use. And, I, you know, I might either be a be a fool or a, a, a temporary genius, but um, but I know Barry's got some some thoughts as well, and uh, we're going to do that tonight. I'm try not to do it too late, but um, um, you know, you you look at some of these 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 two year olds and the turf sprint. With these massive fields and uh, trips are going to be such a, an important factor. You know, running five and a half furlongs on the grass and there's 14 of you, you're not going to get a lot of second chances if you get stuck or if you get blocked or you get trapped or you get checked or you get hung seven wide. It, it's uh, someone's going to be the beneficiary of that. Be, to be honest with you, I have a hard time coming up with much in those turf sprints. I can't figure them out under normal circumstances. But when you have horses coming from all over the place, good luck. If you're good at them, God bless you, because uh, because that, that, is, <laughs> that is not um, something that, that uh, I feel overly confident on trying to figure out who's going to uh, be able to get... Um, who's going to be able to get the trip and who's not going to be able to get the trip. The two-year-old turf races as well. Uh, I like betting on them. I never seem to win. Um, it's interesting, kind of seeing some of the Europeans coming over, and, and some of the Europeans come over, and, and you look at their form, and and you're thinking, well, they're coming over because they want firmer ground, or they, um, you know, well, they used to need Lasix. I guess they're not getting that anymore. But uh, um, the Americans have done pretty well in those races, but. Um, I, I have a, I, I still have a hard time uh, making heads or tails out of, out of those, and I think uh, there's a couple other races that that are that are really difficult, and um, and we'll talk about that tonight. And obviously, the replay will be on the rest of the week. And I know there's a million shows of people 
uh, going over and handicapping the races. And this isn't going to be a in-depth handicapping show at all. But um, we'll throw some things out there and and uh, try to have a little bit of fun with it. Um, it's uh, it's it's looking like the weather's going to be good for the Breeders' Cup, which is good. I mean, nobody. Nobody wants to see off tracks and terribly soft turf. Maybe somebody who has a horse that loves the slop or, or loves soft turf would like it, but uh, it's nice that uh, we're going to get to bet these races on a seemingly uh, fair surface. Obviously, some of the early undercard races might give you an idea of if there's any track bias of any sort, if speed looks like it's good, if it doesn't look like it's good. I know Breeders' Cup Day, we're starting out the early pick five with what looks like a free square with Nashville and the, uh, what's it, the Perryville um, is the connections. In my opinion, wisely chose to skip the Breeders' Cup. I just don't, even though I think the sprint is kind of a soft race this year, they, the same barn has an outfit, the same outfit has a contender in there. Uh, one of the choices, a horse who I actually like a lot, um, that has a similar running style, that's got a little bit more experience, and uh, it's probably the prudent choice. But uh, I-, I wonder if they didn't have Yupon uh, or Yupen or whatever his name is, um, that they might have been a little more aggressive with Nashville. But it isn't. It, it's, uh, it is what it is. Vacoma Drew Post 14. Um, I spoke to Mr. Biancone today. He's confident, and Diamond Oops is going to get a a good trip and have a shot. I don't know that I share the same confidence, but um, it's it's kind of an odd sprint, and there's not much speed in there. But um, you know, signed on, dead front running speed. But it's an interesting race. Vacoma drawing post 14 certainly makes the race uh, adds a little more to the intrigue. <clears throat> the distaff, obviously, we'll talk about the distaff. We'll talk about the classic. Um, we'll talk uh, the dirt mile. To me, is is should be downgraded to like a grade three. <laughs> it's kind of like a, in in the trotters, they have. Uh, finals and 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 they have eliminations and they have a final and they have a consolation it, it almost the breeders cup mile this year looks like a consolation and it, it's uh a lot of horses that um nice horses yeah we'd all love to own them and train them and such but as a breeders cup race goes it's uh it's an it's an odd group <clears throat> excuse me an odd, an odd group of course and we'll, we'll touch on that race a little bit and uh so we'll 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 be on uh we'll be on tonight and uh probably sometime after ten it'll post it and uh certainly you can get it on Spotify or Anchor wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh we'll try to try to come up with some, some hot takes and uh try to be right about them. But uh this week you're gonna hear a lot of opinions. You're going to hear a lot of theories. You're going to hear a lot of Tisden Law's got the inside post. The Vacoma's got the outside post. Max Security's got the outside post. Bop, 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 bop. But uh, in the end, put them in the gate, and they run around a circle, and uh, somebody wins, somebody loses. And hopefully, you can get 
enough winners strung together where you can make money, which is the name of the game. Makes you happy. Anyways, today's show, I want to wrap it up by saying thank you to, to John Veach. He was great. Appreciated his time. Um, and uh, George Velasquez, who um, who made time for us today um, out of his schedule. He had something to do, and I was happy that we was able to get him on and, and talk about uh, some of the great horses he rode over the years and uh, get his uh, his input on a couple of the new the new rule changes. And um, appreciate everyone listening. And again, uh, we'll be on later. To, uh, and next week we will be talking about what happened. So thank you for listening and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully everything goes well. Talk to you later. This is the Going in Circles podcast hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your